Just to kind of give you an overview of the format that we're going to do this morning, uh, we're going to introduce our speakers. Uh, we're going to ask about writing habits and what that looks like for them on a daily basis, um, how they prepare for projects, uh, or multiple projects possibly, and then we're going to move to the actual process of submitting uh, writings to journals or uh, the pro what the process looks like for publishing books. So um, it's going to be kind of action-packed for the next hour or so. So. Uh, hold on tight. Um, a little bit about what we do here with the writing, uh, with our library talks, just kind of the, the focus of it is to connect with students who are interested in the academic life, um, who are gifted in that area, and just kind of uh, connect with them, um, give them a chance to talk to people who live uh, in the academic life and what that looks like uh, on a day-to-day -day basis and kind of uh, peer in through the window and just see what that uh, what uh, what they have to do to to um, to work in academics every day, and so that's kind of the purpose of these talks is just kind of to connect us uh, and connect the student with what that looks like. Um, so let me introduce our speakers. Um, first speaker uh, or first panelist is uh, Dr. Matt Mullins next to me. He is the assistant professor of. English and History of Ideas here. His areas of interest are ethnic literature of the United States, postmodernism, globalization, critical race theory, and rhetorical theory. Um, he currently has a publication under review, uh, Postmodernism in Pieces, uh, Materializing the Social in the U.S. Uh, in US Fiction 1960 to 2010. Um, our second panelist is Dr. Nathan Finn. He's the Associate Professor of Historical Theology and Baptist Studies. He's also the Director of the Center for Spiritual Formation and Evangelical Spirituality. Uh, his areas of interest, of research interest, are Baptist history and theology, history of Christian spirituality, revival history and theology, and American, American evangelicalism and fundamentalism. Uh, he has several works that are uh, forthcoming uh, in, uh, in between July 2015 and January 2016, uh, The Baptist Story from English Sect to Global Movement, uh, and then uh, History, A Student's Guide, and then Andrew Fuller, His Apologetic Writings. He's also co-editing two other works, uh, Spirituality of, for the Scent, Toward a Missional Spirituality, and The Cross-Centered Piety of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. That was all correct. Right Sounds now. good to me. All right. And then finally, on the end, we have Dr. Chuck Quarles. He is the professor of New Testament and biblical theology here. Uh, he's, his areas of research interest are Gospel of Matthew, historical Jesus research, Pauline studies, Christology, textual criticism, New Testament, and Greek. And he has, uh, we've listed on your uh, uh, list of all their publications that two books are forthcoming. They're actually already out, but he is actually working on uh, Matthew uh, for the exegetical guide to the Greek New Testament, and hopefully that'll come out sometime in 2016. So we list all of that uh, just to kind of show you these guys are actively writing um, or in editing process, so um, that's why we have them here today uh, to hear from them. So the first question. Uh, well, first, let me thank you guys for taking time to be with us. Um, we can't do this without you, so um, we, we appreciate that. Um, the first question, I'm going to throw it out, is uh, why is it important for Christians to write, academically or vocationally? Um, Matt, would you? I'm happy to start. Um, 
good writing is important because good writing is usually a sign of good thinking. And so if you're writing well, um, it typically means that you're thinking well. Uh, writing is really different than oral communication, as you all well know, because uh, in a written context, I can't uh, express or communicate an idea and then have uh, my audience say, well, wait, what did you mean by that? Right? So whereas uh, in this conversation, if uh, Dougal asks a question and I or Nathan or Chuck answer and someone's unclear, you can say, well, what did you mean? And we can say, well, what I meant, and we can rephrase and readdress uh, and have kind of a, a rhetorical situation, a rhetorical moment in which dialogue takes place. And the, the reason that writing is, is so important uh, is because it requires that you've already kind of worked through all of that dialogue and all of that exchange um, as you write so that any potential objections or miscommunications are worked out ahead of time. So you have thought then, as the writer, through all of these potential snags and problems, your thinking on the topic has been really nuanced and sophisticated. And you are imagining not just communicating an idea, but communicating an idea to an audience. So for us as believers, writing is especially important, and academic writing is especially important, because we're talking about communicating some of the most important ideas, some of the most important truths um, that, that can possibly exist to a, a wide variety of audiences. Some of you may write to the church, some of you may write to other Christian academics, and others of you may be writing in, in the public sphere. All of you having to imagine different kinds of audiences, different kinds of potential objections, different kinds of dialogues, working through all the nuances and sophisticated objections that might, may arise in your own mind, coming to something like a command of those things, or as close as we can get to them, and then articulating them in a way that can be understood uh, outside of your own brain. So I, I think writing is not only important in general, uh, but even more so for us as uh, thinking Christians, as believers. And even to think directly about our context at a seminary, uh, not everybody feels called to be a writer, but almost everyone who's in seminary is going to be in some sort of uh, ministry of teaching or proclamation or whatever the case might be. And so uh, building on what Dr. Mullins said, not only does it help you in thinking through what you're going to say, but I think just a good general axiom, if it sounds weird on paper or on the community screen, uh, or on the computer screen, it sounds even weirder when you say it out loud, right? And so it, you're helping to prepare yourself uh, to be a, a better oral proclaimer of the truth and teacher of the word if you've taken the time to think through that on paper. Uh, even if you don't take that paper with you into the pulpit or the podium or whatever the case might be, I think you're still in a position to better communicate your thoughts verbally uh, if you've taken the time to write them out beforehand. I think as we entertain the question, why write academically, we also ought to look at from another perspective, why not write? Uh, and especially for those who are in Ph.D. studies, I would say we do not write to pad our resumes. No, that's right. uh, we do not write in order to simply impress our peers with our scholarship. We write for the glory of God through the advancement of biblical scholarship uh, because the correct interpretation of the Holy Scripture matters. Uh, we are called to be faithful workmen who correctly handle the word of truth. And anything that we can do to clarify the church's understanding of Holy Scripture is an act of worship done in service of our Lord. All right. Thank you. Um, how does that, uh, Dr. Quarles, how does that kind of fit in with 
uh, how you choose what you're going to write about or what subjects you'll write about. Uh, that vision of, you know, not just to pad your resume, so why do you write uh, academically? Um, I write to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I hope in my writing to find areas where my expertise intersects with the needs of the church or the academy today, uh, addressing a faulty interpretation of Scripture, sometimes a low view of Christ or of the Bible, and then using uh, my sometimes very narrow areas of expertise to guide the church and the academy to better thinking. You have you guys have anything you want to add on onto that? Amen. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. So, um, one of the reasons that we do have you here is in the title is writing habits. So maybe if you guys, uh, Dr. Finn, if we can start with you, just talk about how much time do you devote daily to a writing habit, um, and maybe how that, what that looks like within maybe a current project you're working on. How does that, uh, how's your writing habit facilitate that? Yeah. So. I would love to be able to say, like some of my friends do, that every single day they're committed to a thousand words or they're committed to carving out two hours. Um, There are many days that are like that, but the reality is, as a professor, there are also seasons where uh, it's not possible to write for several weeks. And so just to be absolutely candid with you, uh, I'm at the very end of a season of about five weeks where I've not been able to write a word towards a writing project because of a special one-week class I was preparing for. Uh, I had a unique number of sermons to prepare for a speaking opportunity that's coming up. So writing has been on hold. But this next week, starting next Monday, I hope to get back to what is my normal pattern of writing, uh, which is an attempt to, rather than thinking day by day, I start by thinking week by week. And I look at the calendar for the week and think, how many hours do I think I have? And then I move from the week to the day. And uh, and what I aim for is trying to have uh, anywhere from five hours to 20 hours a week that I can commit to writing. Not everybody's schedule looks like that, um, but I try to arrange my schedule in that way. I think I normally land at about 10 or 12 hours uh, on average. And the way that works for me is there's a couple of days a week that I've crammed classes and meetings and other things into those days. And I know uh, that I'm just all in with teaching and with meeting with students, with meeting with faculty colleagues. But then there's two and a half days a week, where as much as possible, uh, I try to be free of classes and meeting with students and committee meetings and things like that, uh, so that I can get in not necessarily eight hours, but you know five or six hours uh, in one day of writing. And so uh, about a month ago, I turned in a, uh, a manuscript for a book, and leading up to turning in that book manuscript, uh, what it looked like was, on average, uh, three or four days a week, writing anywhere from four to six hours during those days uh, in preparation of that, uh, knowing that from time to time there'd be a couple of weeks where I couldn't write at all uh, because of other responsibilities. And over the course of about nine months, uh, that resulted in a book. Uh, So I haven't figured it out. I'm constantly tweaking. There's definitely a tinkering sense to writing, at least for me. Uh, But that's what I'm trying to do is be flexible enough to know that God's called me to do several things, and writing's only one of them, so sometimes writing has to be put aside. But writing is one of those things that I feel called to do, and so that means I've got to be very intentional about carving out time uh, to write so that uh, good ideas, I hope good ideas, actually make it to paper at some point and don't just continue five years down the road to still be an idea that's churning in the mind. 
Dr. Cordos. Well, the only way I can write is to compartmentalize my life, similar to what Dr. Finn is describing. Uh, I do not multitask well at all. I struggle to hold a microphone and speak at the same time. Uh, so I have to have designated times for writing. Uh, like Dr. Finn, I try to organize all of my classes on two to three days a week, then reserve the other two days exclusively for writing and some course prep. Uh, right now, I'm doing more course prep than writing because I'm teaching five classes. Uh, and then I'm interim pastor on top of that, which can be challenging. Uh, this is the ongoing struggle that every writer faces. You love to write. You feel called to write. Uh, but it can be difficult to find the time to write without harming uh, other people in your life or neglecting other important ministries in your life. If, if I can take just a little bit more time. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the most important conversations I have ever had in my ministry uh, was with a biblical study scholar who visited me when I lived in New Orleans, he wanted me to partner with him on a writing project. And I was very enamored with this scholar. And uh, he was very prolific. If I were to tell you his name, everybody in this room would know it. And I began the conversation by asking him how he had managed to be so very prolific. He said, uh, oh, that's easy. I sacrificed my son. And I was stunned. And I said, what did you say? He said, I sacrificed my son. And he went on to explain that he had focused so much on research and writing for the glory of the guild that he had grown, his son had grown up a stranger to him. Now that his son was an adult, he was an alcoholic, a drug addict, and most of the time actually lived on the street. And I tried to comfort him and to say, well, I know there were a lot of other factors. And he got angry with me and he said, no, listen to me. I am the reason for that. And then he looked across the table and said, you've just told me the projects you're involved in, all the ministries you have going, and I want to say, frankly, I am very afraid for you. Please don't repeat my mistakes. And that was a life-changing conversation for me. It forced me to back up and look in my life about what matters most. And I recognized that my priorities did not reflect uh, those of the man of God described in Holy Scriptures. And that called for a radical restructuring of my entire life. It actually called for me to change positions of ministry uh, so I could do what I was called to do without neglecting my family uh, that I deeply, deeply loved. Some people are so driven to excel, to make a name for themselves that their families are in shambles, they cut ethical corners, and on and on we could go. And I almost feel like I'm compelled today not only to urge you to consider academic writing, but to also count the cost, uh, because there will be a cost. There will be things you will have to sacrifice in order to devote time to academic writing. You may sacrifice friendships with peers. You don't go out to lunch when everybody else is going out to lunch together. Uh, but some people make far greater sacrifices than that 
and I fear that they will deeply regret some of those sacrifices. Yeah, I could actually um, build directly on what Dr. Quarles is saying um, and to explain how I kind of have formed the writing habits that I have formed, and that is uh, throughout kind of the, the first two-thirds of my graduate school experience, um, I was married, and uh, my wife had a job, and of course I was doing school full-time, um, and so, but we had no children at that, at that time, and so, uh, I mean, I basically worked on my schoolwork and writing and study, uh, I mean, around the clock all the time, home, there was no division, like school, home, work, there was, there was no division in those things for us, because, of course, at that time we didn't have children, and if we wanted to go out, we could just stop and go anytime we wanted to. Um, and then with uh, our first son, I had this uh, revelation that we all have, and that is, oh, we can't just drop what we're doing and go and hang out together, the two of us, whenever we want. Um, and I'm going to have to really change the way I do schoolwork. I didn't realize that I had something of a, uh, a workahol problem, <laughs> right? uh, which I just worked all the time uh, because my, my schedule is really flexible uh, personally, uh, and, and the kids changed that. And so um, this happened kind of in my prospectus phase as I was transitioning from coursework to comprehensive examinations to prospectus to dissertation. And so uh, I was reading a lot about how other scholars organize their time. And I think even though I, I do things a little bit differently than both uh, Drs. Finn and Quarles, um, in part that's because uh, I'm, I'm not involved in vocational ministry. I don't have the responsibility of the pulpit. And so there's a huge additional weight that the two of them carry um, that I do not carry in terms of uh, both uh, spiritual and, and time uh, commitments there. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, during that dissertation phase, um, after reading uh, what a bunch of other writers had done, just kind of talking to my, my mentors in my program, uh, I began to try to, to write first thing every day. So I used to always teach in the morning uh, during grad school um, on the advice of one of my mentors. And then I would say, okay, well, I'm done with my teaching for the day, and I have the rest of the day. But I realized that I, I was able to focus more on my work in the mornings. And so I would, for, for that semester when I began my dissertation, I scheduled my classes in the afternoon. I'm not so much worried about the specific days, one or two or three days or whatever. I just want my, my, my courses to be, my classes to be in the afternoon. Um, so that when I um, get into the office, as soon as I have finished my, my time with the Lord, I like to be uh, writing, as in actively writing, at, at 8 a.m. So for me, it is a more, there's a more specific uh, kind of uh, habit for me, as you made it sound like something we need to kick, right, the writing habit. Um, uh, but uh, but, I, but I, I really came to that discipline, uh, and it is a, a spiritual discipline, I, I think, um, as a result of a similar kind of revelation, like, wow, if I'm going to be home and give time to, to my wife and to my son, now that kind of the nature of my responsibilities are really changing, then I'm going to have to think differently about my time, about the, and especially about the finitude of that time, uh, you only have a, li a little bit of it, and so you need to be really hyper aware of that and, and to organize it well. And so I still, for the most part, um, keep to this habit in which um, I try to be writing by 8 a.m. Uh, ev every day, and sometimes it might just be 40 minutes because my course prep is really heavy uh, for that week, or like this semester I'm doing two new preps, and so um, I'm trying to just stay ahead, right? Um, but um, other semesters, you know, it, it might be a little less stressful. Some days it might be more like two hours, but usually I'm never doing my work, as, as I call it. I'm never doing that for more than two-ish hours in the morning. So, uh, so that on Tuesdays and Thursdays, right, I'm, I'm done with work, I'm done with email, and I can go to chapel at 10. Uh, and so that's kind of my, my general pattern and habit is uh, to be in front of the computer, to be actively working, 
uh, at 8 a.m. And what that means is that when I stop working at the end of that session, um, I need to be kind of uh, in a place where I know exactly what comes next. So usually I stop in the middle of a paragraph where I know exactly what I need to do next and I put that thing in brackets and then I stop. So that when I sit down at 8 a.m. Or, or a little earlier, but then I start at 8 a.m. the next day, um, there's no like, uh, I read what's in the brackets and I left off kind of in mid-thought and I can just pick right up with where I was before. Um, and there's no kind of like waste of half an hour trying to figure out what to do next. Um, so it is true, right? Sometimes they're more stressful than others and some days it might be half an hour or some days I come in and I'm like, I am not ready for class and so I'm working on that first thing in the, in the morning. I try not to let the day end without at least opening whatever ongoing project I have going and at least rereading what I did the day before. And sometimes that's just what writing looks like for that day, rereading or going back to a source or something like that. If I can just briefly build on what you talked about with the warning. Um, Christian scholars really live in overlapping worlds in some ways. So in the one sense, you feel the scholarly calling, which you might feel if you're a believer uh, who teaches English at a state university or who teaches history or psychology or whatever the case might be. And then in a context like this, there's also the more, if I can use this language, ministerial calling specifically to build up the church. And both of these things honor God. Scholarship in general done to his glory scholarship specifically for the church to build up the church. An unintended negative consequence of that, though, is a lot of Christian scholars feel this double pressure when it comes to publishing, right? You're trying to wear both of these hats, and you're trying to contribute to your field, whatever that is, but you've also always got this eye on serving the church and building up the church. And so one of the things that I've tried to remind myself about whenever I feel that temptation to take on more than I should, knowing that's going to negatively affect family, church commitments, or whatever, is the same thing that I think I would be telling myself if I was a full-time pastor. And that is, yes, God has called me to do this, and he has gifted me to do this, and it honors him to do this. But nevertheless, the kingdom goes on, and God's purposes are accomplished, and he is glorified even if I don't write this article, or I don't write this book, or I say no to this project. And so I'm trying, as time goes on, uh, I think I felt a lot of pressure early on to say yes to just about everything if it was a good idea. And now I'm increasingly trying to say, well, what's most strategic for the kingdom? Where do I really, truly feel like the Lord can use me specifically to contribute to the kingdom? And where do I just need to say no and trust that if the Lord wants that project to be tackled by somebody, he's going to raise up somebody else to do that? And I think that's how pastors think, and I want to think as much like a pastor as I do a scholar uh, whenever it comes to writing or any other project that takes time outside of what I am obligated to do as a professor at Southeastern Seminary uh, in terms of teaching and mentoring students. Um, thank you all for sharing on that. That's uh, wise words for all of us. I think that's a temptation um, that uh, scholars are sometimes, or young scholars are sometimes, you know, shocked to find is that they have this, uh, they want to do well in scholarship, but um, they also need to do well in other areas of their life as also. Uh, one question that I have uh, for you, because Dr. Quarles mentioned making a name for yourself, you have that temptation. Um, how big of a temptation is that, uh, or was that in your own life? Um, and then quite possibly, do you see that uh, in young scholars, young Christian Southern Baptist scholars maybe, um, and, and what would you say to address uh, that 
that temptation just to them, or what advice would you give them to help avoid that temptation? Uh, I'm happy to talk about that. That's something I, that I personally, I think, kind of uh, struggle with. If you're writing for publication, you're writing for people to read your, your name, in part. I mean, there's just no way to get around that unless you're going to um, publish your scholarship anonymously. Um, so in, in, in my field, um, uh, it's, it's a little bit different maybe because I'm, I'm writing for a field Sorry, I'm writing for a field um, that is not ministerial, that is not really, um, that does not have any spiritual goals in any explicit sense whatsoever because I write in the field of literary studies, all my professional conferences and my audience. Um, uh, the vast majority of them would, would probably not call themselves uh, Christians uh, or, or would not call themselves believers. And so I've had kind of a really weird and probably atypical experience with this kind of temptation to make a name for yourself. And that is, I've felt this strange responsibility as a believer um, to uh, kind of to publish and to make a name for myself um, so that well, this is, uh, there are good and bad things and this is kind of maybe really oversharing. Uh, but so that when, I, when I'm at the conference, right, when I'm at ALA in Boston this May and I'm wearing my name tag and it says Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and people are always like, what's that? Right? <laughs> <laughs> they don't know what that is. And then I have this opportunity, right, uh, this is, which, is, which is my ministerial calling and my best opportunity three or four times a year to, to share the gospel um, with people that, that I've developed relationships with, say, oh, well, you know, it's a Baptist seminary in Wake Forest where we train students, you know, who are going to go into ministry. And they're like, well, how did you end up there? And then I have this window and this opportunity um, to share the gospel. Uh, the, the problem that tends to go along with that in, in the circles in, in which my, my scholarship uh, participates uh, is that um, the very name of my institution can also uh, not only be the, the name I wear around my neck, but also something of a millstone. <laughs> in terms of my academic reputation. Um, and so I felt this kind of uh, strange uh, pressure or maybe even temptation to produce really good scholarship, uh, to try to publish in uh, you know, the best journals, to try to publish uh, my, my book with really good university presses and so on and so forth as some way of kind of legitimating uh, or legitimizing my own reputation as a scholarship. And this is where I think uh, Nathan's advice uh, is so good. And that is that, you know, God doesn't need my book, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, uh, to, to make his name great uh, at all, right? Uh, he, can, he can use that. And um, if I'm willing, if I will, as uh, Dr. Platt said yesterday, uh, David Platt said yesterday in chapel, if I will surrender, Right, and write him something of a blank check, then he will use even my scholarship about postmodern American literature um, to make his name great. Uh, but it's about changing my, my state of mind, right? not writing in order to make some kind of name for myself, but of course you see right, writing uh, with the possibility that, that God might be able to make his name great in some way. He doesn't need me to do that, right? but can I put myself in a position um, to allow him to, to glorify himself, right? Not his name and, and not mine. So if I can speak a little bit more um, spiritually and pastorally to this issue, and candidly, uh, I struggle with this every single day of my life. So the Puritans used to talk about uh, what they called besetting sins. So besetting sins are those sins that you always struggle with, right? You, you can't run defense 
on these sins, if you will. And you know, there are some sins you can run defense on. You don't really struggle with it. Every once in a while, you do it or you think it or you say it, you repent, life goes on. Uh, but there's also those sins, and we all have them, and, and you know, we close our eyes, and this is what we feel guilty about at night or whatever the case. So just full disclosure, I struggle with this every single day of my life with uh, the temptation for the project to be about me rather than it being about serving the kingdom. So something that I found helpful over the years in this battle, uh, in addition to the Word of God and accountability relationships with people who are further along in the Christian life than me, is uh, occasionally talks or books even uh, or articles that kind of get right to the heart of this issue that are written for people like me and like some of you aspire to be uh, who are Christians who are in the academy who are trying to contribute to that. Uh, one of them is a talk that John Frame gave uh, at Evangelical Theological Society a couple of years ago on the difference between uh, faithfulness as a scholar uh, and making a contribution uh, and that as Christians our primary calling is faithfulness and we sort of trust God when it comes to things like academic respectability and how that may happen but, but faithfulness and honoring Christ and serving the kingdom is more important than that. Uh, and then uh, also an article that came out this past fall in the journal Thamelios, uh, which you can access online, uh, written by a friend of mine named Andy Nacelli, uh, where he looked at two recent books that were written by New Testament scholars in this case, one about a New Testament scholar, one by a New Testament scholar, where in varying ways uh, he discerned, I think correctly, that they had either messed up their life um, or just their priorities were out of whack and, and they were focused a little too much on the contribution rather than faithfulness. And he just really talks about these books and makes a lot of very pastoral application for especially younger scholars, junior scholars, PhD students and whatnot, uh, about having rightly ordered desires and rightly ordered loves as you enter into uh, that calling as a Christian scholar to make sure that even if you do struggle with a desire for your name to be great rather than just Christ's name to be great. Uh, at the end of the day, you're mortifying that, and, and it's really about advancing the kingdom, and it's about serving the church. And so I would commend those to you and just say, in general, every younger scholar needs one or two older scholars around them uh, who can just speak truth into their lives uh, whenever they see uh, that sort of temptation. And my conversation, like Dr. Quarles's, is, uh, was with an older faculty member who's no longer here several years ago where he said some very kind things about me and then offered a, a couple of very clear and pointed warnings that weren't just general warnings but were warnings that he saw in me and said, you need to get a rein on this even as you continue to do this. And, uh, and I still think seven and a half years later that the Holy Spirit was in that conversation. So just, you know, be aware of what your temptations are, even as you do seek to pour yourself out in serving the church uh, through the ministry of writing or whatever that gift might be that the Lord's giving you that you want to use to advance the kingdom. Dr. Quarles, do you have anything to add? Uh, yeah, I think everybody who writes struggles with this, and I did uh, struggle with it intensely. Um, I received my Ph.D. and my Master of Divinity from the same institution. Uh, I'm very glad that I went to that institution, but it was not as academically respectable 
and the Southern Baptist Convention as the six cooperative program seminaries. And so even though I was eager to teach in a seminary or Bible college, train pastors, I saw doors closed again and again and again. And I was instructed that when you first complete your Ph.D., you're evaluated based essentially on the identity of your alma mater. But that 10 years down the line, uh, you will be evaluated on your own contribution to the field. And so you might have made a mistake in your choice of seminaries if you wanted to step into the academic world, but if you write aggressively and publish in the correct venues, then in 10 years you'll have no problem at all teaching in one of our seminaries. And so driven by a love for teaching, I found myself working hard in research, writing, and publication and uh, soon found myself in the middle of a great spiritual conflict over it all. And what's the proper motivation for writing and what is actually a sinful motivation? Uh, and so at every step since that crisis, I've had to pause and ask myself, why are you doing this? And. Uh, sometimes I've had to check my motives. If I've discovered, well, here lately in conversations, I've been spouting off to another respected scholar what I most recently published. Well, ouch, that's probably a good indication that it's about me far more than it should be. We should write because of everything else we do in life. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind and strength. And if there are little clues that we're not motivated by love for God, but it's really love for Chuck, we're headed down a very dangerous path. Another thing that's been a check for me is if an editor asks me to compromise issues of conviction, Am I willing to do that just to get the article out? Uh, or do my convictions matter enough to me that I'll say thanks but no thanks and either lay the article on the shelf or seek to publish it in a less esteemed venue? Little tests like that, I think, show where our motives really lie. Okay. Um, well, I think that's a, a decent segue into one of the questions that I that we have here today is what does the process look like for publishing articles um, how do you choose journals to uh, to uh, to send your article to um, and uh, what happens after you send your article how long does it take for them to get back to you and things like that um, so just kind of because I, I feel like this is the part that when when you first start off this is what you don't know um, and so I, I kind of want to provide that for our audience today. Is like, what does that look like when you when you try and submit a journal article uh, somewhere? Um, anybody can jump in. Well, I'll be happy to get us started. Um, first of all, I would like to assure everybody in the room um, that just because you're an evangelical doesn't mean you can't publish in the respected academic publications. That's a myth that widely circulates that I've found not to be true. 
uh, I, I vividly remember telling one of my instructors in the PhD program that I was planning on submitting an article to my favorite New Testament studies academic journal. And uh, he chuckled. <laughs> and then he put his arm around me and held me tight and said, don't get your feelings hurt. And I thought suddenly, oh, you dummy, who were you to think you could possibly publish in this particular venue? And I was almost embarrassed that I had even submitted the article. And two months later, I got the acceptance letter. <laughs> and I thought, well, if God can do that once, he can do it twice. And so I kept submitting articles to journal after journal. And somewhat to my surprise, they were accepted for publication. I think that we sometimes have adopted the world's view of evangelical scholarship, and we think it's subpar somehow. Why should it be? Uh, if we are empowered by the Spirit of God, if we're writing independence on Him and not just the gifts He has granted to us, and if we're writing out of love for the Scripture, shouldn't our scholarship at least be on a par with that of unbelievers and more times than not actually surpass it. Uh, so let me encourage you. But you do have to follow the rules. If they say an article submission should follow the Chicago Manual of Style and the SBL Manual of Style, follow the manual. If they say do not submit an article in excess of 6,000 words, don't send them an 8,000 word article. And when I make a submission, it's not something I've thrown together. It is the product of mature thinking, uh, of writing and rewriting, laying it aside, letting it grow cold and incubate, and then looking at it again and making further modifications, normally having some of my peers go behind me and give me their feedback. Uh, so that when that submission is made, it is my very best work, very best. Uh, and I am shocked uh, again and again that God would take uh, my work and use it. Uh, and I think it's to the glory of God who uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the weak to confound the mighty. Uh, God can use you. And it's really an expression of our disbelief to assume that he cannot. So when I think about this question, you know, it's interesting because Dr. Quarles teaches New Testament in an evangelical seminary, and Dr. Mullins teaches English in an evangelical seminary. And church history is kind of somewhere in between the two disciplines. Um, it's a, it's a seminary-type discipline, but unlike Bible and theology and pastoral theology, um, kind of according to the rules of the game, if you will, by definition, it's mostly a descriptive discipline rather than a prescriptive discipline. We're interpreting what people said. Now, we might also then make application, but that's not really church history. That's what we're doing with church history. So sort of by definition with being a church historian, when I think about journal articles or, or book chapters, any sort of scholarly essay, I have to think really intentionally is this something I'm writing primarily for the guild, though I'm not going to hide my convictions, 
Or is this something I'm writing primarily for the church where it's not so much a con church history contribution, contribution as it is using church history as a springboard to have conversations about pastoral theology or spirituality or whatever the case might be. So I was very aware going into the discipline that that's where it was. And I had seen guys who I felt like were too far one way or the other. Um, and so I've always tried to be very intentional with with splitting what I write about in half. And about half of my writing, I'm thinking, okay, well, what are those leading journals? And how can I honor Christ and honor my institution and everything else by trying to get published in that and making a descriptive scholarly contribution? But for every article like that, I want at least one, if not two or three, uh, articles of similar length or book chapters of similar length uh, that are really extensions of my teaching ministry. Uh, how can church history become a springboard or how can Baptist history or revival history or whatever actually be a springboard for talking about contemporary issues in the church. So not, not every discipline is like that, but that's what I have attempted to do and really see, even though it's all writing and it all involves research, seeing some of that as being a little bit more scholarship for the glory of God and seeing others as my teaching ministry but in print. Uh, and I think that you know that everyone does that but that's how it sort of played out in my life. And, and just to piggyback on this for a second, um, kind of a related theme, in evangelical circles and in the academy in general, uh, people talk a lot more about monographs, books, collections of essays, things like that. I love journal articles. And so I would just encourage you, if you're thinking in that direction uh, towards academics and writing, you might even feel institutional pressure at time to publish books. That's what gets talked about on web blogs and that's what gets published in the alumni magazine. Dr. So-and-so has a book and whatnot. But I just absolutely love the 5,000 to 10,000 word journal article or book chapter. It's a little more self-contained. There's a little bit more freedom again with whether you go one direction or the both or you're trying to split the difference. And so I would just say don't be a hater when it comes to uh, journal articles and book chapters, but see those as, as real opportunities to, in, a, in maybe a little bit less period of time, make a very focused argument uh, that's serving the academy, the church, or both, and not feel compelled to always have to produce the big work that might receive a little bit more honor vocally, um, but let's face it, people are going to forget about it in a year anyway. So play to your strengths and write what you want to write and contribute how the Lord's leading you. Yeah, I actually agree. I really like the genre of the journal article and also the discipline of the journal article, um, especially if you are doing as Dr. Quarles and Dr. Finn have both said, and that is to kind of aim high. Um, and that was, this was the advice I got, right, uh, to aim high and then to, if it gets rejected, to work your way kind of down the ladder. Um, but also, that's important because the process that you go through in writing a journal article, so the first journal article um, that I ever published, and, and you, there's only three responses, right, when you submit a journal article, it's either yes, uh, with minimal or no revision, uh, revise, resubmit, uh, based on the, the reader's uh, uh, comments, or no. <laughs> so there's really only a, kind of a three, three major options. And the first journal article I ever wrote, like most responses, was a revise and resubmit, and then they accepted upon revision. And so when you, when you submit, um, it, the journal article is usually, depending on the journal, going to be um, uh, read by someone you know, that you don't know, and it's either a blind or a double blind. Um, reading, and so there's kind of something like a crucible or refiner fire, however you want to think about it, 
that you go through with the discipline of the journal article um, that I think is really good, especially uh, at, for us as junior scholars, as, as, we're, as we're learning and growing, uh, to kind of really sharpen your skills uh, because you're meeting the expectations of other top-notch scholars in your field. They're going to send it out to someone. Uh, I reviewed my first ever journal article uh, this year. Um, and, in, uh, so, uh, and it was sent to me because I'm one of only like a handful of people who published an article on this specific novel, and the, the article was on, was on that writer. And so, since I was one of the only people who had published on that writer, ostensibly this is why they sent me um, this person's article. And so, along with a couple other people who had ever published on this person, uh, I was reading one of, my, one of my colleagues' work and giving my feedback and sending it back to the journal. And so, you kind of go through this uh, really sometimes cumbersome process, but uh, you will really grow and you'll know, right, Either you know it, you understand, you are really con contributing to this conversation, or you might realize that you're missing the mark. Um, but I think, practically speaking, like how do I go about this? Uh, the very first thing that Dr. Quarles said about his, his first experience I think is key, and that is that he wanted to publish in a journal that he really liked and respected. That meant that he had enough familiarity with the journal <laughs> to understand that uh, his work kind of fell in line with the work of that journal and that um, his voice fit in, and whether it be because he's disagreeing with kind of the, the, some writers in there or agreeing or you know, kind of nuancing some work. He had enough familiarity with the journal uh, to do that. So one of the first things I would say is that you to become a professional scholar in your field, you need to know what the journals are in your field, and you should read them. Uh, that takes time, and so that's difficult. So I don't know, um, it sounds a little bit different in y'all's experiences, but um, so the first two things that I published, my um, dissertation advisor was very influential in like helping me find the right journal. Uh, I was like, I think, I'm thinking about this journal for this piece, and he was like, no, why don't you think more about this one instead? So with that first one, I was thinking about a very specialist journal in contemporary fiction that I really just, I really, really wanted to publish in. But the, ar the argument I was making ultimately paid more dividends for thinking about the genre of the novel as a whole. So it was a much broader topic. And so I placed it in a more kind of generalist journal, something that wasn't quite so specialized. And I couldn't articulate that to you at the time, but after the process uh, with uh, my advisor's direction, I was able to do that. So try to develop familiarity with the journals in your field and then if you're not quite sure, right, go to that, to that senior scholar, to someone who's done a little bit more than you, and ask her his, his advice about what you should do with that. Um, also, just know that the seminar papers you're writing for classes um, are good starts, but really bad practice for the journal article. <laughs> um, for all the reasons that, that Dr. Quarles said in his like, explanation of his process, and revision, and peer review. And you, ca you cannot okay, um, especially as just starting out, um, develop, uh, develop fully. I think you can uh, develop an idea, but I don't think you can develop that idea uh, fully enough to make it a publishable journal article in the one month that you spend writing your seminar papers. I mean, the semester's only three months, right? You don't start on day one on that seminar paper. Uh, the work that's required for a good journal article, you know, eight, nine thousand, eight thousand words, something like that, um, is usually the product of multiple months at least of, of work and so if you've got a really good seminar paper and your professor this is usually how the process starts says hey you should think about publishing this in a journal you should imagine that as like the very first step that you just took um, towards doing that and then ask that professor okay so what should I what should I do next in, in developing this work 
Um, and then they'll probably say, well, your literature review right now is like eight sources and you need to go read a lot more <laughs> or something or something like that to figure out how your work fits in. But usually you have something, you identify the journal maybe with some help, you follow the prescriptions as, as closely as possible. If they say, you know, at only 8,000 words, it needs to be 8,000 words or less, preferably, right? If you meet all those requirements, those expectations, you've got the house style, you kind of have a general sense of, of what the journal looks like. You make the submission, um, and just, it really depends on the journal. Uh, I've got an article under review uh, right now. Lots of times you submit them online now, and they have like trackers and stuff that you can keep, keep track of your, your submission, which is, which is maybe good, or if you're a little OCD, maybe bad, because it becomes like a ritualistic thing, like daily. It's problematic. Um, Maybe you guys don't have that anxiety. Um, we don't have trackers in our field. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, so um, I submitted on 29 September, right? And I'm and, and after a while, the tracker said one out of one review completed, and I was like, that's weird. And uh, now it says one out of two. So I don't know if they initially submitted two, and there's a problem with the tracker. So you can just drive yourself crazy with this stuff. Um, but it's been since 29 September that I submitted this thing. I've not heard a single word, right? And don't email them unless it's been like six, seven, eight months, so you don't follow up, okay? Um, and then it's kind of okay. But they're gonna keep it, uh, just depending on the journal. Um, this was a journal that the person who suggested I send it there was like, it's gonna be like this. <laughs> so I was like, okay. So I knew that going in. Um, but uh, usually three months, six months, somewhere in that range, they're gonna send it back to, with one of those responses. Uh, especially early on, I, I felt like uh, Dr. Finn as well. If I got a revised resubmit back, like, I put everything else on the back burner, and I just worked on that and tried to get it back to them um, as soon as possible. But on the whole, I mean, the process, I, I've never had it in, in five goes, I, uh, five publications, I've never had it take less than a year um, from submission or uh, from submission to actual print publication. That's going to be different depending on the competitiveness of the journal. They might take they might get 350 submissions in, uh, in a year and only publish, you know, 10 or 25 or something. So I don't know if, if in y'all's discipline, if in theology, but so you have something like this. The MLA for us has like an international directory, uh, bibliographic dire directory in which you can go on and look at the journals and it'll say all these criteria, like between eight and 10,000 words, receives 250 a year, publishes 10 or whatever, and explains all that information. But usually the individual journals will have some type of information if you don't have kind of a, a periodical directory like that in your field. So just kind of familiarize yourself with the journal in that sense, submit, just know it, it's gonna probably take a while. And then once they do get it back to you, it's like you got a live one on the line and you wanna get it back. Uh, to them as, as quickly as you possibly can. And then they might finally take it and say, yes, good. And it might be a whole nother year before it actually makes its way into print because they've got a backlog who knows how long. Uh, or they might be doing two special issues on these topics and yours is more for a general issue. Right? So you just got no control. It could be a three-year process from starting it to getting the thing in print. Uh, and that we haven't even talked about monographs and how long that takes. So, so just to play off one thing he said that I think is important, um, he mentioned his seminar professor kind of speaking to that. Um, for those of you who are or aspire to be PhD students, if your professor isn't giving you that sort of feedback, demand it from them. Yeah, you should ask. You should ask. Where, okay, I, I get that I made a whatever the grade is, but do you think this could be converted into something that is of publishable quality, and if so, can you recommend two or three journals I need to be thinking about? So if your professor's not doing that, 
ask them to do that. If you end up being a professor, be that person who offers that feedback on every single seminar paper uh, to students and suggest ways, even if it's something completely, it's a, you know, this is a good idea, brother, but you really need to, and here's a ton of suggestions, or if it's clean this up a little bit, cut a thousand words, here's a couple of suggestions. Every, everyone's different, but your students deserve that sort of feedback. And as a PhD student, you deserve that sort of feedback from your professors. All right, uh, we've got about five minutes left. Um, so we didn't get to books at all. Uh, maybe we'll have to do another library talk about that next uh, semester. Part two. Yeah. Uh, but one thing I do want to ask uh, all of you to just kind of uh, uh, say very succinctly is uh, for young writers or people who've never written before, um, um, and aspire to do that, what's the biggest piece of advice that you would give them uh, as they're starting out? Write all the time and write in community. It's just whatever it is. You're, I mean, write your papers constantly, go through revisions, consider blogging or just even unpublished writing your thoughts down. Write all the time and show it to people who are better writers than you are and let them have feedback. I'm a big believer that you primarily become a better writer by writing a lot and getting feedback about that writing. Yeah, I wouldn't say anything too different, really. I would say write daily. That, that would have been the thing I would say. Okay. Dr. Quarles? Well, this, this goes along with what Dr. Finnis said, but I would say write with humility. Um, there are lots of different reasons to choose this journal or that journal, uh, and I've been guided by different motivations. My last journal submission, though, was based on the fact that I looked at the names on the various editorial boards, then picked the group of scholars that I felt was the best in this particular area, and submitted my work to them because I felt if it couldn't pass the scrutiny of that group of scholars, it needed to be rethought. And number two, uh, I wrote in hopes that they would provide helpful feedback that would help me improve my work. Uh, I think editors need to hear from you in your letter of submission a willingness to cooperate with them, mm -hmm. learn from the editorial process, and grow as a writer. Uh, and I'm learning from discussions with editors that that is not as common as you might hope. All right. Well, um, let's thank these gentlemen with a round of applause uh, for help being here today. And um, I want to thank a few other people who, who helped put this together. Media Services running uh, the camera, uh, Corey back there. Um, and then facilities uh, doing some of the setup. I'd like to thank uh, Heather Teeter um, and Alana Davis, who's not here today, for doing a lot of the uh, coordination with other departments. Um, Jason Fowler, our director, who's back there, who uh, lets me do this and, and encourages me. And then the library staff who help. I can't do coffee and everything, uh, and even 
put together the, the questions for this talk without their help. Um, and uh, so those guys back there and, and all around uh, the library staff are very helpful with this as well. So thank you for coming. Um, I am, this is becoming one of the highlights of my job. Uh, this is only our second talk and just, uh, and just being able to have, uh, be able to talk with uh, professors and then to be able to uh, converse with you afterwards. Uh, these guys will stay around for a few minutes after, uh, after we're done and you can uh, ask them any questions that maybe uh, we didn't, uh, well, not maybe, that we didn't get a chance to answer that maybe you texted in. Um, but thank you for coming and uh, we look forward to next time, uh, which is oh, April 22nd, I think is the date, but it's Great Commission Week and we're gonna be talking about how scholarship uh, uh, kind of integrates with mission. So, all right, thank you gentlemen.